Welcome to That Feels Like Home, a new podcast by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, reaching you from Middlesex University in London. I'm Manavaitha, and I'll be hosting this season to talk about the different meanings we attach to our homes, building new stories from our collections that connect to contemporary issues. We invite academics, creative practitioners, and students to rethink the past through the lens of the present. And today we're going to be talking about Collendale, which is part of Barnet, and this is where our museum is located in northwest London. This is one of the 32 boroughs that make up Greater London. And we're going to be talking about how this area has changed over time, in some cases quite dramatically, over the past 20 or so years. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Magali Perfit, who researches this area. Welcome, Magali. It's a great pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. So in Moda, we are interested in this part of northwest London because we hold a large number of archival material, such as pamphlets and photographs, about this part of London in the early 20th century. This is not just of historical interest. It also serves as a reference point to think about how this part of London is seeing very fast changes and how this might be having very significant impact on how people live and on their sense of belonging. It might be useful here to give some figures. Bartonet's population has seen a steep rise in numbers from figures in 1992 of over 290,000 to 387,000 in 2017. And I'd like to start thinking of the very site of the museum, Beaufort Park in Collendale. This is a multi-phase development. It's built on what was once the Hendon Aerodrome, and indeed some of its streets still take aviation names such as Aerodrome Road or Propeller Way. And one estate agency describes the area in their website in this way, and I quote, they say, tree-lined avenues connect leafy squares and grassy courtyards, while the very large central Beaufort Square offers beautifully landscaped parkland for residents to enjoy. The state agency also emphasizes the Mediterranean-style boulevard and the heart of the development, its cafes, bars, restaurants and supermarkets. Now, this image of high-rise flats and cafe culture also contrasts with some of the things we'll be talking about today with Magali, which is the suburbs in the 1920s and 30s and the pastoral fantasy of the suburbs at that time. Many Londoners in the 1930s moved from the city to outer London. They were seeking a more rural environment and higher living standards. And these suburbs were attractive because they were near the countryside, but still within the reach of shops and work in central London. And we've tended to associate this image of suburbia with a white middle-class nuclear family. But as we'll be talking about in the course of the podcast, it's worth reflecting that this vision of the middle-class suburbs was perhaps never the only reality. The importance of suburban council estates, for example, has been increasingly recognised, and these were usually built after the Second World War and marked a growth of social housing. One example that we'll be touching on is an estate near us, Graham Park Estate, built in the 1970s. And this is a council development that is currently being talked about because of regeneration plans underway, which could substantially affect its residents. So what's the interest of all this? So this connects to the wider theme of suburbanization. This is a word that we'll be mentioning quite a lot in the programme and is quite a difficult word to pronounce, so bear with us if we swallow our words. In the suburbs, recent research suggests that there's a lot of scope to do more studies and to help us decode this is Magali Perfit. So just before we start, I'm going to introduce Magali, who is Senior Lecturer in Criminology and Deviance at Brunel University. And until recently, she was a colleague here at Middlesex University. Her research looks at identity, home and belonging, 
and she examines the under-researched area of suburban displacement as well as gentrification with a view to promoting social justice. So let's get started. And I want to begin by talking about the origins of the word suburb. The scholar Ruth McNamas has established that in earlier times, this term the suburb was used in a negative way. These negative associations probably hark back to the Latin origin of the term, which is composed of the prefix sub, which means under or close to, up to, towards, and then herbs, which means city. Early suburbs were those parts of urban areas that lay beyond the physical limits of the city, beyond the city walls. They were often places that were considered unpleasant because there were polluting trades, industry, and also it was often the place where those that couldn't afford the privilege of living in the city itself. Now, this negative connotation of the suburbs was rapidly reversed in the early 19th century with newly emergent middle classes beginning to seek residences that were actually outside the city rather than in the inner cities and thus being in an environment that was immune to pollution, that was more rural, that was more healthy. So bearing in mind all of this history of this term, I wanted to ask you, Magali, how do you think these definitions stand today? Yeah, I think we've moved a long way from this definition. But defining what suburbs are or what suburbia means is always tricky as it is amorphous. It is quite amorphous concepts. So taking your definition, we can of course envisage the suburbs in first of all geographical terms as peripheral zones in the city where processes of urbanization have more traditionally followed a centripetal movement of expansion. Yeah, we can imagine that. But from a sociological perspective, we also need to understand suburbs in socioeconomic terms as well as in cultural terms. So as you said, suburbs can stereotypically be seen as the realm of white flight from the 1930s, and we can link that perception to suburban expansion from the suburban villas um, of the Victorian era through to the interwar period of suburban expansion. However, the demography of the suburbs have changed over the years, especially in London. And I have to, in parentheses, notify that London, to be precise, has never followed quite a strict pattern of centripetal expansion with the suburban areas, strictly speaking, as um, middle class areas. Yeah? In fact, in the suburbs, we can see spatial opportunities to, to expand through council housing in the 60s and 70s, as evident in Collindale. You mentioned the Grand Park Estate. Today, we also see a growth in suburban poverty due in part to displacements incurred from gentrification in the inner, from gentrification in the inner areas of the city. So it is important to note that the cliche of white middle class suburbia does not longer hold true, if it ever was, yeah? So the suburbs of London are particularly multicultural, diverse in their ethnic makeup, um, and ethnic composition. It is, in my opinion, essential to rethink the suburb beyond their mythology and even perceived ideas of their morphology. So the idea of a 2.1 white middle class heteronormative family living in a detached, semi-detached house is, to some respect, we can still still evidence of that, but we also need to move away from this traditional picture. I think that provides an excellent grounding and the way you map out the complexity really of understanding the suburbs and all the different kind of iterations that there have been both geographically but also over time. But 
I guess what I want to do now is to dig a little bit deeper into mm-hmm. precisely what you were saying of these cliches mm. of the 1930s interwar suburb. Because mm. in Moda, we have a mm. large collection of promotional material Absolutely. that relates to the development of the North London suburbs in this period. Amongst these are house brochures by developers. Mm. Also, we have posters of building societies, which were financial institutions that help people purchase or improve their homes. But there's one particular brochure of a developer of 1936. It's called George Reed and Company. And I know you've looked at this one in the past. Mm. It includes developments in Enfield and Southgate. These are areas not far from where we are now, and they grew extensively in the 1910s. And then we have these brochures which often present these kind of cottage states in uh, you mentioned morphology before so Mm. quite traditional but then we also have other brochures like for instance this one that I'm looking at of Be Modern at St. Margaret's for Edgeware which is um, slightly different in the sense that it it tells the reader that this is a house of health that it invites the sun and it's situated in surroundings that give pleasure and and rest so we see kind of this appeal to being modern alongside more conservative calls. And I wanted to ask you about this just to think about, you know, what makes this part of London desirable? What kind of lifestyles can we associate with it? And who had access to it? Yes, I've I've found your collection absolutely fascinating over the years. And I'll explain a little bit more why uh, in my answer. I'm not sure this part of London was particularly desirable. Uh, I think it's just part of suburban expansion, geographically speaking. And we can see this phenomenon at the time in the interwar period taking place across the country, yeah, mostly to relieve demographic pressure from the city. So we, it started from the Victorian era, where we expanded further and further away, although there are differences as time-wise depending on cities. But the way I analyzed it in the past is that mostly it is a sign of modernity. So suburbanization understood within the parameters of suburban modernity, where material improvement is to be linked to social mobility and social aspiration. So the brochures here reveal how the suburbs of the past were appealing to middle-class family with traditional structures, yeah? So appealing to that kind of population and demographics. So for me, because of that connection to social and mobility, and that's and social aspiration it is quite evident, for instance, in the brochure at, at Moda, where suburbanization remains in many respects associated with a geography of class, a geography of social aspiration entrenched in British modernity. Yeah, and you mentioned being modern, but and more specifically to the context of the suburbs of the English-speaking world. I guess I want to insist on this particular aspect here, culturally speaking. You're always analyze suburban aspiration against Britain's class structures. I just want to give you a quote here by Giles, who argues for a contextual understanding of modernity in Britain in relation to the particularities of its class structure. So if you allow me, I'll read very briefly. Of course. (laughs) The survival of the monarchy and an aristocracy, albeit with limited political power and its industrial and imperial history, gave Britain a large urban working class which despite unrest in the early part of the century, 
chose to deal with a changing world through the discourse of material betterment rather than militant political activity. So that refers to common perception of suburban expansion, which would have suburban living as the ultimate aspiration of upward mobility and materialist achievement in the context of British modernity. So the aspiration to become a homeowner, to own that piece of land. So the privilege of the upper class normally to be homeowners here accessible to a, a wider proportion of society here, yeah, having your own little land your home as your castle, and that's a possibility out of British modernity. You talking about ownership and, you know, this question of almost how that can be an, an aesthetic to dissuade people from political action in some respects makes me think of more broadly just the, the increase of home ownership that is happening this period from the 1920s. Mm. So we had witnessed... In 1919, there is the Addison Act, which actually gave local authorities power to build more council housing. But although they wanted to build 500,000 houses within three years, as the economy weakened, funding had to be cut. So they could only build just over 200,000. And what that means is that there's an increase in private development mm. from the 1920s. And we have material in the collection that relates to this and which shows that in the suburbs particularly, a lot of houses are sold for profit, often without the need of an official architect or planner. Some firms grew to become really large and new ideal homesteads would be one that would become the largest in the country. And we have one pamphlet here of this housing developer and I wanted to focus on it and especially the imagery that we see though so I'm just going to describe it for for listeners so you have this pamphlet that has a title Tom Bil home builders at the top and then there's a depiction of a man and a woman the man is holding the woman and they seem to be wearing 16th century clothing and in the background you can just about see these images of ships that also look of that period and you know they've just come from the sea into some new land and this is interesting because it seems as if this is some kind of new frontier but actually we're looking at new ideal homesteads a pamphlet for to acquire new houses so what do you make <laughs> of of this imagery what kind of rhetoric is in it and do we see connections to mm. this today mm. as well with new developments I think I like the fact that you call it new frontiers. I think at the time we saw suburban expansion taking place on the outer periphery of the city. So we could see them moving into those new lands, mm -hmm. uh, which were just rural areas that were gradually being purchased by the city. So it's a fascinating image to look at of those two pioneers with this very strong man looking after this, uh, after his wife. Um, <laughs> so I, I suspect, again, we have a very heteronormative image of a couple moving into an area. We can see that the image that came into popular culture of aspiring to move to those suburbs to provide safety, but again, moving into virgin lands <laughs> yep. that could be populated. I wouldn't want to say colonized because this is not what it is, but it's about taking ownership of that particular area. The long history of urban social policy really uh, encouraging home ownership. So throughout the years, through suburban expansion and later with the right to buy. So there's always been a long insistence compared to other countries in Europe on home ownership in the UK. 
often because it's also a form of capital investments yep. and investments into the future. But what I find interesting here is also a perpetuation in the way and looking at more recent brochures from the developers of the new estates in London. It's the way they are trying to attract new residents in the recent developments, by which I mean the way they're trying to attract new people in an area that is supposed to be designed and fashioned in their image and reflect their aspiration and lifestyle. So they have in mind that they want to attract a certain type of population to come in and uh, populate new developments. So that's interesting. I think if we were to compare the image, we still have images of couples moving in. There's one image as we arrive in Collindale on one of the hoardings or one of the posters where you have a couple on the bench, I think. And the statement is, you've arrived. So I think there's a nice echo from yeah. that. They've, you've arrived. You've arrived physically where you should live, but you arrived also. I suspect the messages you've arrived socioeconomically as well by moving in. So I think that you can see some similarities. Obviously, now we see that expansion being vertical and we're going to talk more about suburbanization looks like nowadays in London in particular, because instead of being horizontal, being that centripetal movement of expansion is now going upward with high-rise buildings of uh, flatted suburbs. So there's a difference, though, in the way they're trying to attract or the type of people they're trying to attract. I think they are trying to attract young professionals nowadays, young couples, although I think the reality is slightly different. I don't think necessarily the people who are moving in into the new developments are fitting with that image that they are trying to portray. So that's something to be problematized. But we can see parallels we can see stark differences and i think that's what's fascinating about using the collection to make sense of the suburbs of today by looking at the suburbs of the past and i wanted to touch on one aspect of that which concerns the way in which public space has been thought about and we were talking about the ways in which communal facilities were part of some of these developments earlier whereas now yes. in the new brochures they're slightly different in the George Rees and Sons uh, brochure where there's clear mention of what's attractive about the area and by purchasing one of their homes in the area. And there's definitely mentions of public parks and golf course and I believe leisure centers, public schools, as in state schools in this case, theater, cinema. So we see here how the suburbs are developed to still be quite, you know, of course there is the domain of the private within the home mm -hmm. and the privatization of home ownership, but still the way it's being sold is still as quite a public space. Yeah. And when we compare this particular brochure by read by current development brochures of around Collindale, there's different features that are put forward. So instead of state schools, there are mentions of private schools and the close universities nearby. If we look at entertainment and leisure, that's quite significant of the privatization of living and lifestyles. So you won't have a public park anymore. The park is gated. I don't know who has the key to that park, but it has <laughs> CCTV. It's clearly only to be used by the residents. And I suspect it's to be used by private residents, not the ones on social housing. So, the, you know, there are different doors as well, depending if you're on social housing or if you are 
either privately renting or homeowner. So there's, you know, quite a withdrawal within the public sphere. It's a private land. It's a private land. The streets are private. There's private security. There's evidence of surveillance and CCTV everywhere. So space is quite controlled and privatized. So these are some of the contrasts I think we can make here and questions who they are trying to attract in these particular areas and how it's being used as a space. I wanted to dwell a bit on this issue of who's living in the suburbs and who was living in the suburbs in the past. Mm -hmm. And just to talk about an aspect that is important as part of the suburban experience in the 1930s, and is the way in which this was quite a gendered experience. And we have one pamphlet here that is called The Bride's Home. It was published by the Women's Journal for Moral Builders. And it's quite interesting, just the title itself, I think, is quite mm. revealing, The Bride's Home. The pamphlet says, and I'll quote, Happy indeed will be the bride who starts on life's greatest adventure in this thrilling house for the many labour-saving improvements that her home can be run efficiently and without too much hard work. So... I wonder if you had some thoughts about this gendered aspect of the representation of states in the 1930s versus the reality, but also how does this link to today? Is this substantially different? Do we still need to take gender as one of the important dimensions alongside class and ethnicity that you've already mentioned? I think to some degree it's impossible to study homemaking without having a gendered perspective. Of course, we will see some changes, but mm -hmm. it's an important aspect. And when I was looking at the pamphlet and at the brochures, actually, I think it comes up in a number of brochures and advised about how women have to maintain their suburban home as well as decorate them. It's just this insistence on feminine domesticity that is put forward as a marketing argument. So again, we have echoes of Victorian ideals of the family, of the nuclear family, the heteronormative family, of course, where the wife is the guardian angel of the home and the husband goes out to work. They always reminds me when I engage with gender and suburbia of the work of Betty Friedan on the feminine mystic, because that's where she based a criticism of an ideology of femininity based on woman domestic confinement in our case in American suburbs. So this golden cage of domesticity, which, you know, pertains quite a lot to a post-war era. I think a yeah, number of changes have, however, taken place, but I think we still always must question issues around homemaking within a gendered perspective. And what's interested, you mentioned taste. And taste is intimately related to class. And here, always at the intersection of gender and the notion of class, when women are imbued with the responsibility to make a home and keep a home against the best possible taste, which is really interesting, against uh, this hegemonic script of what good taste in yeah. these middle-class uh, homes must be. But I think moving beyond that, the suburbs have always been a lot more heterogeneous than they appeared on the brochures or in the magazines, both in in the kind of role and place of the woman, as well as in more recently ethnic diversification. But I think it's always been more heterogeneous. Yeah, exactly. And I think really what we see in the collection here is that myth of the suburb as the white, middle class, mm. generally conservative, inward looking family. 
Yes. And that's that's a reality that is presented to us by this promotional literature. Mm. But we can see it elsewhere too, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm thinking especially of popular culture. Mm-hmm. You have an interest in this from a sociological perspective mm-hmm. and have done research. Mm-hmm. So would you say that the suburbs have also been fictionalized through the media and in what ways? Yes, in, in many ways. Yeah. <laughs> uh, popular culture has reinforced myth of suburbia as why middle class and homogeneous and culturally poor. American popular culture in particular is quite rich. I was particularly <laughs> fascinated in the work of Tim Burton in the 1980s of his films of particularly, you know, there's always an underlying criticism of suburban life. He's very critical in many of these films of this suburban. Now you can think of music bands who've written about these issues. So generally not a very positive look on, uh, even if they often come from a suburban background. So there's a lot of kind of what I've called in, in the past, there are big denunciations of the suburbs as culturally lacking, homogenizing spaces of middle England. And that's common in literary, but also in academic writing. So that, you mm-hmm. know, academics also have been quite dismissive of the suburbs as just this, middle-class places that aren't worthy of academic interest. But yeah, actually, yeah. that's quite the opposite. I can mention the work of Rupert Hooke, for instance, who has interestingly uh, worked on debunking many suburban myths by looking at popular culture. So she dispels some of these myths about suburbia by drawing attention on what she calls suburban Asian storytellers who have marked popular culture from their distinctive suburban point of view albeit quite limited to suburban London. In many ways, Asians too have aspired to live there while making it different, reaffirming their suburban dreams, but in different ways. And this has resulted in a number of narratives in popular culture of what she calls suburban Asian London. But unfortunately, mostly we see perpetuation of this idea of mm-hmm. uh, popular culture. <laughs> but it's moving on. I think we can see other examples where it's, it's slightly different. Research is opening new ground and you're looking at issues around belonging, identity, mm-hmm. but also the impact of gentrification. So do mm. you see that this is changing gradually? Is there a growing interest in looking at the suburbs from a sociological, critical mm. perspective mm. that will bring new evidence and help us understand better what is happening mm. in this part of, well, the city, like in London, but also mm. elsewhere? As you said, it's very different London from other cases. Are we understanding better what suburbanization means mm. and what's on hold for the future. Yeah, I think there's definitely, I'm only situating my work within a growing existing body of work of people who are turning their gaze, their attention from different areas of the social sciences uh, on to the suburbs. Definitely, uh, it's about what kind of realization or impact this will have in the future because at the moment all we can see what I can see that obviously requires further investigation is that they seem to be providing a spatial fix because they still provide enough land for further expansion to kind of target a housing crisis that's um, affecting London at the moment. And that can be problematic because uh, this can be quite a quick fix. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of issues around infrastructures that aren't being changed. There is no investment in improving uh, transport, education, health services within the suburbs to reflect the amount of people that are going to arrive or are arriving and moving in into those new developments. 
because we're talking thousands. I have come across a few interesting references, mm. particularly McNamara's and Ethington, who in the US have tried to show the diversity of suburbia and draw attention really to the ongoing transformation of the suburbs rather to that kind of historical past and association. Is there a parallel history to be explored in the UK? It has been essential, especially when I started my studies on the subject, to look at the literature from the American, North American perspective, because, and I was particularly interested in the work of uh, Lacey in America, who had been looking at middle-class black suburbanites in Washington, D.C. So it was essential to look, uh, or in even in, in Canada, so it was essential to see what had been done, I guess, been done earlier, to some extent in North American context on different people moving to uh, suburbia. So that was in- essential to ground my work. Also because suburbs are a global phenomena. And I've mentioned the fact that we can talk about social, culturally speaking, these notions of suburbia tend to apply to English speaking world cities. But we see them developing in cities around the global south as well. So there's, there's, there's a global interest around suburbs where there still remain uh, ways to relieve demographic pressure, but often still associated with removing yourself from more chaotic inner urban areas. So we see that in cities across Asia, for instance, where you have new suburban developments tend to be gated. So um, that's in- interesting to see that is also beyond the kind of um, Anglo-American literature on the issue, which is growing. It's also thinking about the global south and how suburbs are developing there too. So really talking about the suburbs means understanding how they're changing, the new trends of development, as you're saying, globally, but also in London. And here particularly wanted to ask you about the development of council estates in the suburbs, because that's an area of research that you've been doing for a number of years. And perhaps what you've found is not corresponding to what people often think of when they think of the suburb. When I started to look at this aspect of the suburbs, actually, perhaps because initially my work was done in, in Nottingham. So again, the patterns are different with provincial cities in a way more straightforward in terms of what's defined as suburban neighborhood. But with suburban boroughs in London are very diverse. They often have pockets of poverty, juxtaposing areas that are highly desirable. So these contrasts need to be notified. So this is by arriving in London and notably doing field work and field work with my students that the contrast between some of those pockets became more apparent. And notably when we look at Colindale, uh, we see those new high-rise flats that are marketed as to be uh, luxury, appealing to uh, that kind of market. And we cross the road and we have uh, Grand Park Estate for instance, uh, which is one of the largest uh, council estates, probably the largest council estates in Barnet. And um, and there's a real contrast that's neglected and in limbo at present waiting to be uh, regenerated, but regenerated against what conditions? That's the question. It reminds me of an article that I came across recently mm-hmm. written by Loretta Lees mm-hmm. and Philip Hubbard. And in this article, they discuss issues around displacement Mm -hmm. and particularly the tensions that 
can happen between existential and embodied meanings of displacement, so being removed from a place that Mm. you call home, Mm. and legal definitions of displacement, Mm. so the removal of a right to a property. Mm. But in this article, what they also discuss is this right to community, Mm. which is to say that there are legal arguments that residents can make when they're threatened by displacement to assert the right to stay put. And I wonder if this has some bearing on the work that you're doing about the Graham Park estate with the changes in the suburbs and with the neglect of certain areas that then are regenerated. How residents might have the capacity to stay put or what's going to to happen after these areas are being regenerated? I think for me, it's more um, related to the work I'm doing in Harrow, for instance, where by I see the Lise and Hubbard's article is really interesting because it's offering a different perspective on the legal framework that would work in favor of council estate residents, which, you know, often they have a battle on, on their hands to keep their rights to housing. But There are forms of activism, there are ways in which they organize themselves across London. There are many examples whereby residents get together to affirm their rights and their rights to, in the case where redevelopment is happening, regeneration is happening, to fight for what we call tenure blind redevelopment. So that whether or not you're on social housing, you access the same kind of facilities, that the development doesn't make a distinction between the private tenant and the tenants on social housing. Also residents, they want a better place to live in, so they're not necessarily against their area to be rebuilt and regenerated in better conditions, but they want it so that it's fair as well, so that they also benefit from the same facilities and that there's no, if you like, physical divide between private and um, social housing tenants. And that's important. We're talking about the suburbs, but is it Mm. happening also inner city areas? Mm -hmm. And with that, I guess my broader question is, do we need to see these two as more connected? Mm -hmm. Is there a false binary here between the suburbs Mm -hmm. and the urban they seem to be very connected to me and seem to have been very connected historically. Mm. But sometimes the scene as there is this I know. divide as well. I know. So we really need to think beyond this dichotomy. I think it's impossible to think the urban as being... I mean, there's still this relationship. You know, we talked about the connection to public transport because there's still this kind of inward direction that's felt. But there's a lot of things that are happening in, in our boroughs in London that have an impact on the suburbs and vice versa. You talked about displacements. We can talk about displacements from people on council estates that have happened. We can talk about the West Hendon estate, which has been in the news to have contributed to the displacements to a number of its tenants. But <laughs> it's also the, the fact that We look at the marketing. We talked about some of the current brochures trying to track certain population. I'm not sure they're necessarily attracting the young professionals that they want to attract because I think, and that will need to be proved by further empirical research, I think there are also a number of people who are moving into those new estates that could not afford to live in the inner boroughs that have seen a surge in their house prices because of regeneration taking place there. Mm-hmm. So it's it's it is, there is a movement yes. and there's a kind of a pressure cooker happening in London that creates waves of displacement and it's it's quite complex in that respect. 
So I think, yeah, we need to always move beyond a dichotomy. It's definitely the two are in dialogue <laughs> and, and the impacts of what's happening in one area uh, or one particular area would have consequences elsewhere. And you yourself live in the suburbs, mm. right? How would you say this experience has informed your research? Have mm. you been engaged in any autoethnographic Mm-hmm. research have you always lived in the suburbs or <laughs> what's your more personal relationship yes. to the suburbs it's interesting that you ask this question i mean i grew up in the suburb in france not one of the suburbs that have negative connotations but one of the residential suburbs of uh, a suburban town of a large city so it's quite dormitory you know it's very heteronormative family houses so and and quite boring. So my dream was always to, you know, I went to high school in the city center and I aspired to live in the city center. So when I moved to the UK, I mostly always lived in Nottingham or Newcastle in an inner city area. Also because this is where I could afford it. <laughs> when I moved to London, I moved to a suburb because it was more affordable mm-hmm. than in in the uh, other inner boroughs. So there was a question of affordability in the suburbs. I didn't move into a residential leafy suburb. I moved into Harrow but not in the most desirable of um, neighborhood of Harrow. Trying to get involved in the various discussions that are taking place around the regeneration of different neighborhoods in Harrow. I take part also in the residence regeneration panel, trying to oversee the plans of regeneration and work in discussions with the council around those plans. So it's an interesting insight into the process of regenerations and what they're able to do and not able to do because they have to respond to the pressure from the mayor of London to build more housing, more affordable housing. You know, it's needed. There's demographic pressure here. But on the other hand, they're also extremely reliant especially in times of austerity, with doing those developments with the help of the private sector, which again will pose some issues when it comes to the right to the community, right to the city, because the interest of the private sector is definitely different to the interest of public good and housing as public good. The suburbs have offered this kind of spatial opportunity to expand, but they've mostly expanded upward. So I can think of Wembley, I can think of Colindale as particularly spectacular examples of those vertical expansions where you have, like I said, thousands and thousands of new homes. But the only way for those new homes to exist within existing land or using brownfield sites, whatever, is still to go upward. Mm -hmm. So we have now high-rise flats. In the past, there used to be negative connotations with the high-rise living in the UK because of the association with council estates. And there's nothing inherently wrong with growing vertically to uh, elevate, if you like, um, demographic pressure and housing shortage. You know, that's fine. Many cities in Asia have responded to that by going upward. There's also a lot of studies that show that in Asia or elsewhere, this hasn't just been a housing fix. It has also been a way to partake in kind of financialization of housing as a form of capital investment. So that's problematic in itself when housing is not just uh, as kind of a primary right, but becomes yeah. a form of capital investment, a way to move assets or retain assets uh, in the city. So that's where I, I think in the suburbs, they're pretty dramatic at the moment. The, the height, the, the scale of the change, 
number of people are going to move into those new areas. And moving into the future, mm. just my last question, which <laughs> I always like to ask uh, all our guests that come to, to the show, is how do you envision the next 20 years? And more importantly, what changes would mm. you like to see? Yes, I think it, it goes back to the... The points I was making early on is to continue research those areas, to understand better who lives there. In order to envision the future, I need to understand what's happening in the present. I need mm -hmm. to understand exactly the kind of demography in either the new developments, the old council estates. So I need to have a better picture of what's happening on who is moving and to what purpose they move or you know have they had a choice in moving into the suburbs is it like in the past where there was this social aspiration or is it because they had no other choice yeah. than moving here for me however i think it's something that we haven't seen since the 1930s and i would like to do more research on what i'd refer to as a new mass suburbanization so again we have thousands of homes being built every year with little actually in terms of investments in public infrastructures. So I want to see that relationship. And I think, I think looking at it, this might be problematic if local authorities are not acting fast in relation to developing the public infrastructures mm -hmm. that are needed. Because yes, you know, those domestic uh, fortresses are providing their residents with gyms and saunas and private parks, but there needs to be more about what other kind of structures are in place to provide health, education, and primarily, <laughs> and transport, of course, yeah. That would be uh, the questions I pose is, you know, and who is this for in, mm. in this context? And especially when, you know, we see, again, a reliance on the private sector, where the state is withdrawing from its responsibility to provide housing. Of course, the mayor of London has stated its commitment to offer a home for everyone. So, And the, the mayor of London's strategy is pretty clear. And, you know, it's pretty admirable on paper. But the problem is, is when those developments are built and handed down to housing associations and the way housing associations are then managing mm. those mm. developments. So a lot of interrogation marks there. Yeah, mm. lots of questions that we'll keep asking. <laughs> Not always Hopefully, with, with yeah. easy answers. Um, but thank you. It's been a, a brilliant uh, conversation, no, and I think we've really, I think we've really cast also an, an interesting and more contemporary light on the collection at Mode and just understanding mm. the differences. So thanks very much, Magali. No, thank you, and you know I really encourage people to come and see uh, what's happening at Moda. I tend to say that a lot and introduce my students to the collection. I've used it for teaching purposes as well as research purposes. And it's been a real insight, especially for my students, to understand, grasp better the concept of suburbia and the suburbs, and looking at the archives, comparing it to the current changes. So I think this is a real insight. It's fascinating. And not just for suburban geeks. Right. So you have all heard Magali. So you all have to come down now to Moda. There Thank you, you very much, Magali. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye-bye. That Feels Like Home is produced by the Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture, Moda, recorded at Middlesex University. In other episodes, we will continue talking about contemporary issues that emerge from Moda's collections, 
from the gentrification of London suburbs to the relationship between our homes, everyday things and memory. You can listen to these podcasts and download transcripts at our website, moda.mdx.ac.uk. And you can follow Moda on Instagram and Twitter at Moda Museum and on Facebook at Museum of Domestic Design and Architecture. You can listen to these podcasts from your preferred listening platform. And we ask you to subscribe if you like our podcast. To learn more about what you heard today, please visit our website. And if you'd like to see an object in person, book an appointment with us by emailing moda at mdx.ac.uk. I'm Ana Baeza, and I'll be back with more quirky stories. But for now, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.